This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to the Times Business Podcast, where we look ahead to what will be making news and moving markets over the coming days. I'm Robert Miller. That means we'll be discussing interest rates, printing money, and what it means for your savings and investments. I'm joined by Philip Aldrich, the Times Economics Editor and Columnist, David Charter, the Times Correspondent in Berlin, and in New York, Alexandra Freen, the US Business Editor of the Times. Welcome to you all. Thanks for being here. David, let me start with you. The ECB has... uh, extended the interest rate or the key deposit rate for banks into further into minus territory and it's extended its money printing exercise. Bearing in mind, I suppose, that German citizens probably have to foot the bill for anything that the ECB does. What's the reaction there in Germany? Right, Robert. Yes, well, German policymakers are furious, really, that this money printing exercise, as you put it, has been extended even further. They didn't want it in the first place. And that's because they think it really allows a get-out-of-jail-free card for all of those Eurozone economies, those nations which are avoiding the really tough decisions to reform their national economies and um, basically improve the strength of the Eurozone. Because it's not all about cheap exports for for Germany and and building the strength of the German export market, because they know that their main main customers are in the Eurozone. And uh, the real challenge is to to raise all the boats uh, in, in the Eurozone. And these ECB measures are not seen as helping at all. In fact, they're seen as prolonging the Euro crisis and putting off Uh, the real crunch decisions that are necessary. But I should say at this point, as Mario Draghi points out in every single press conference that he holds, it's not in his gift to make the national fiscal and structural decisions that are really necessary. And um, beneath his rather, you know, his banker's language, there's a, a rising fury, I think, from him that national governments keep keep delaying the tough medicine that they should all be taking. And we're not talking about Greece uh, so much as countries, you know, core countries like France and Italy. Philip? It felt like uh, Draghi was try, trying to strike a compromise to, to a degree between the sort of hawks in Germany and and uh, and the sort of need to provide, you know, a cushion for the uh, broader Eurozone economy. What, what what he has done is is uh, he's kicked the can a bit further down the road. He has provided a little bit more monetary stimulus, so he has set the conditions 
to support growth. Um, but as David says, and he's absolutely right, the central banks can't actually create or recreate economies. They just can provide uh, some time for the governments to deal with the structural issues. And and so it feels like the ECB has uh, has has managed to buy a little bit more time for these governments to do this by not doing as much as perhaps the markets were expecting. And they were expecting a much bigger bazooka from Draghi. He, he's also, again, putting a little bit more pressure on central on, on the governments themselves to actually to step up their policy responses. David, going back as, since the ECB's in, inception, Wim Duisenberg, in fact, the first uh, president, said the same thing. Governments must reform their local welfare, their social bills, they have to make structural changes if the ECB is going to be at its most effective. Given what we've had so far, has the ECB, do you think, saved the Eurozone, if you like, and kept it together, or is it still very much in a parlous state? Well, uh, in my view, there's no question that the ECB saved the Euro, and that happened nearly three, best part, three years ago now, when Mario Draghi said he'd do whatever it takes And that rhetoric, combined with a bit of planning, but that rhetoric was essentially enough to save the euro. It it changed everybody's perception of what the euro was. It really was a coherent multinational uh, currency with the backing of a, a very, very strong central bank. However, what we're beginning to see now as the quantitative easing program fails to really get the economy going and to encourage growth and, and, crucially, investment, we're beginning to see the limits of ECB power. And I have to re-emphasize that Draghi said in every single press conference for the last three years, he said it's time for the national governments to take the necessary measures that they need to take. And he's, he can't do any more to encourage them. So while the Germans think that he's selling out, um, he's not the hard man that they thought he would be when Bilt Newspaper did the first interview with him and gave him a World War I spiked general's helmet, a pickle halber, because he was going to be all tough and hard. He's been a big letdown for the Germans, but in a way he's been trapped by the failure of the national governments to take tough decisions and the weakness of the European Commission to dragoon the Eurozone uh, economies, uh, despite all of the measures that have been taken since the crisis, um, to, to monitor and to encourage economies to reform, they're not, they're not doing it. They're not biting the bullet. And there always seems to be some reason, some uh, excuse, some other measure, uh, some other uh, burning crisis. And now we have the refugee crisis, which takes precedence. And that's the worry for Draghi and for the Germans. Alex, let me bring you on the line there. Wall Street how do they view the debate that's going on about the Eurozone? I mean, after all, you know, at some stage, the US Federal Reserve is going to vote to, if you like, reverse everything. It's getting out of QE and it will start to raise interest rates. First of all, do they t- pay much attention or are they just so big they set their own agenda? And when do you think the US Federal Reserve might raise interest rates? Well, they, they do pay attention, but, but not all that much. I mean, the, the United States is a pretty much uh, a domestic economy. Of course, exports play a role, but nothing near the same uh, to the same degree as, as for the European countries you're talking about. So they, they care, but not that much. Um, I think it's almost certain that the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates at its next policy meeting on December the 15th and 16th. Um, markets are pricing that in 75 percent of investors seem to 
think that that's what will happen. With regards to the European decision, I think it's worth remembering is that it's not really the Federal Reserve of America's job to look at what's happening outside of the United States. The Fed has a dual mandate to focus on employment and inflation. Since she has taken over, Janet Yellen has, has almost created a third mandate, which is to look at what's going on overseas. And she made that very clear when she um, didn't raise interest rates earlier this year, citing concern about what was going on in China. So she has created this extra mandate. So she will look at what's going on in Europe, but I don't think it's going to stop her and her fellow members pushing for an interest rate rise in um, later this, this month. I, I've heard Janet Yellen described to me as the kind of person who turns up at the airport three hours before her plane is due to take off. She's very, very cautious. She likes to have every single base covered. So she has held back until now, but there, there is really no reason to keep rates lower any longer. The U.S. economy is growing. Manufacturing has been hit, but that's a very small part of the economy compared with the services sector, which is expanding. To draw the ECB back in, into that a little bit, the uh, Draghi did actually increase his growth forecast for 2017 and I, and I think for 2015 as well. And he did talk up the fact that the consumer economy in uh, Europe is is actually uh, doing the heavy lifting now and is, uh, and is giving some cause for comfort and some confidence in belief that the, the Eurozone is, is going to pick itself up. There hasn't been enough structural reforms, but it is also not entirely fair to say that, that uh, countries like Spain and Portugal and, and Greece, I mean, Greece went through horrific austerity, uh, they, have been doing, they have been doing a lot, but it's just that they haven't done enough. And so there can be a tendency to be a bit overly bleak, I, I, I sense, about everything. And if you, if you, did look, if you look at what, one of the reasons why Draghi didn't go for the full... Uh, you know, big bazooka that people were predicting. It, you know, he, he he can argue that the ECB's own forecasts show um, that while inflation remains a little bit below the two percent target, the the, the growth uh, projections are not bad, even considering the fact that you have got a sort of global slowdown and the export markets are are uh, are a bit weak for for Europe. And and obviously over in the US and here in the UK, uh, we're we're seeing uh, you know reasonably uh, resilient growth. Alex, on the corporate front, this seems to have spilled over. It doesn't seem to have deterred massively American companies still eyeing up British and European companies as, as takeover targets. Do they see good opportunities over here still, do you think? I think that, that the answer to that question is rather annoying. It depends. There, there, are, there are a number of forces driving um, takeovers. One is taxation. You know, there are companies that, that want to lower their tax bill, and so buying a, a, an overseas company is a good way of, of doing that. But there are a lot of companies... Uh, in the United States sitting on huge piles of cash and they've got to figure out what to do with it. They've been buying back their shares as if shares were going to disappear. I mean, the, the, the amount of share buybacks has been huge. And so th there is money available for, for acquisitions, but I'm not sure that they just want to go and buy overseas targets unless they can see that it will drive growth. David, let me bring you back in there for a moment. Germany's always had a reputation following on this idea about taking over of having quite complex corporate structures in terms of making takeovers much more difficult. Do you think that will change in the light of markets or will there still be what seems to me as an outsider or us over here as protectionist? Yes, I think it's not just Germany, is it? It's, um, it's, it's a central continental European 
um, issue that uh, some want to um, address, notably the sort of um, the British would like it as part of the Cameron's reform program, perhaps for the for the European Union. But you're right that there is a tendency towards uh, protectionism, especially of national champions. You know, talking about airlines and car makers and things like that are still, you know, it's they're, they're still heavily protected, and it's the reform, is, as we saw with the Italia uh, airline saga, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, has, has been has been really hard uh, to achieve. And Lufthansa is is trying to reform itself, the biggest airline in Europe, but it's um, it's a it's an extremely painful process because it's highly unionised and uh, change is very hard to affect. And this, is, this goes to the fundamental structural weakness of Europe, that the, the German uh, financial and economic policymakers are so frustrated with. It's evident in their own country, as, as, as you rightly say, uh, and a very, tough, a very tough nut to crack. And just coming back to what Philip was saying about raising growth expectations a little bit for the Eurozone, um, I mean, this is based on the era of extraordinarily cheap money that has to come to an end. And I guess the hope is that some sort of investment um, and growth cycle has, uh, has uh, structurally been kick-started, of course, uh, by the time the money tap is turned off. But I, just, I reckon what they're doing is pricing in the uh, external factors, you know, the Fed raising rates and um, driving down the euro and the, and the, um, the end of the era of cheap fuel. Um, I, I believe the ECB believe will also have to, you know, come along so, uh, as sooner the better for them, I think, because that's holding back the, the main uh, inflation rate. Although it's worth pointing out that the core inflation rate when you strip out fuel is actually at 0.9% in the Eurozone, which is much more, um, you know, much closer to the target of uh, uh, 2%. And one of the German arguments why further stimulus is, is simply reckless is that Yes, the core inflation rate has dipped slightly in recent months, but it's at 0.9%. It's not, it's not that unhealthy. Philip, the Bank of England, all these factors will presumably be taken into account. If, as, as Alexandra was suggesting, that we are on for a, an interest rate rise from the US Federal Reserve, does that put further pressure or make it more likely that the Bank of England will act, or can they afford to their time. They can afford to bide their time. The, there seems to be absolutely no impetus for rate rises here in the UK. And frankly, it, I, you don't even get a sense that there's a real urgency in the US to actually raise rates particularly fast. We may get a rise in December, but they may well accompany that with, an, with a statement you know, from the Fed saying that uh, future rises will be very, very uh, gradual and limited and, and extremely infrequent. The Bank of England has been voting 8-1 against, well, for holding rates, not for not doing anything, leaving them at 0.5%. They're, they're going to do that again for December, uh, almost certainly. Whether the U.S. raises rates or not, um, all that's all that's going to happen is it, it will cheapen our uh, exports, make our economy slightly more competitive. There won't be, there's not going to be any need to follow the U.S. There are other issues in the U.K. asset bubbles here and there, house prices, etc., which might potentially need a uh, interest rate rise um, to to tame. Um, but the but the overall picture uh, is clearly that policymakers don't want to start putting the brakes on on growth. So not too much to upset investors in stock market terms and that would send them off to redoing their portfolios, for example. No, you've just had the bank 
re- released its inflation report in November, at which it was incredibly dovish. There's been no data since then to really change the picture much. So, you know, if if you had a if you had changed your investment portfolio in November, you know, I don't think there's going to be any reason to alter your policy before the end of the year. Reassuring words. Thanks for that, Philip. Well, that's it for now. And uh, remember, you can keep up to date with all the financial news on our website. And uh, if you are a Time subscriber, sign up to our daily morning and lunchtime emails. And if you don't have a subscription, we have a special £1 offer. And you'll find that on times.co.uk, or the times, I should say, .co.uk. And if you want to hear us weekly, well, just subscribe through iTunes. My thanks there to David Charter in Berlin, Philip Aldrich here in London, and Alexandra Freen over in New New York, a truly international podcast. They're all on Twitter, so do follow them. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.